Um, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Mark chapter 10. Uh, as Paul said, we're continuing in our series, The Five Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And, and we have this, this idea, even, even people who don't follow Jesus, even non-believers sometimes think, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. Uh, he, was a, he was a great speaker. He was a great person. He had a lot of great ideas. But sometimes we, we gloss over some things that he said or we prefer to kind of sweep them under the rug because we don't really like them. One, or we don't really understand what they mean for our life today. And so that's what we're focusing on uh, with this five-week series, the five things. And like Paul said, there are a ton of them. But we're going to focus on five of them. And uh, the one I chose comes from Mark chapter 10. Uh, We're going to start at verse 17. You can follow along on the side screens if you don't have your Bible. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I feel like we just need to stop here and pray about this scripture before we go any further. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to unpack this in the next few minutes in a way that's pleasing to you that glorifies you, and that uh, gives us direction and wisdom. So we just pray for your spirit upon this room this morning. We pray that you'd be present in this place and that you'd help us hear what you'd want us to hear from this very challenging passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Paul said, I am uh, the new guy on staff, or as the staff have taken to calling it, the Wallen Experiment. Uh, We're in week three, and uh, so far they keep asking me to come back on Monday, so that's good. I think that's a positive sign. Uh, but I have been with Genesis Church uh, for over eight years. Uh, we, uh, my wife, Benita, and I started coming when we were meeting at a Sunday school class at Grace Community Church on Saturday nights. We were going to Grace at Saturday nights, and Genesis was meeting Saturday nights, so it made a, a pretty easy and obvious transition for us. But at the time, um, I've, I was working and have worked for the last 21 years in the corporate world uh, for a company over in Westfield, Indiana, and I got um, more and more responsibility there and, and um more and more uh, influence and more and more money. And, and there were a couple times throughout our church's history where, where somebody would come to me, either an elder or, or a staff member, and say, hey, well, have you thought about coming on staff at the church? And uh, I, I just said, are you crazy? Do you know what I'm doing? Do you know how my job is going over here? Do you know uh, how, 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 how much money I'm making? Do you know, you know what's going on over here? <clears throat> There's no way I'm going to uh, change my life, take a pay cut, and go do something that I know nothing about and work in the church. And, uh, and God has a sense of humor. I believe that. And so last October, Paul Moomal came to me and said, hey, um, we're, things are changing. We're growing. 
um, you know, I'm being challenged in a lot of ways that I don't really know what to do with. And, and would you think about coming on staff? And so uh, I did what any good Christian would do. I told him I'd pray about it. Um, but I really did. I decided I'd pray about it. And, and, um, and so some things started happening after October, after he asked me that question. And he said, uh, would you consider coming on staff? And my initial response was, no, no, it doesn't make any sense. And then some things started to happen, and, and things were happening at work, and things were happening in my personal life, and things were happening at the church that were all kind of conspiring. I didn't see it at the time. Um, but then in January, I, I took a trip to Haiti with, with the rest of uh, Genesis, with some other folks from Genesis, and it was an awesome time. But <clears throat> I, would, I would look around, and I'd see these people living in mud huts, um, living in, in uh, tarps. And um, uh, I, I came back home, and I realized that I had rooms in my house that I never went into that were bigger than the homes of some of these people in Haiti. And, and I felt like God was saying to me, you, you need to sell your house. And I said, but, but if I sell my house, what do we do? We've got to live somewhere, and what are we going to do? And, and I just I very clearly remember not knowing what the next step was, but that, that God was telling me I had to sell my house. And, and this was tough because uh, my wife and I built that house. We were, we were the contractors on it. We, we designed it for ministry. We designed it to glorify God, but, but it was our house. Uh, it was um, on two acres of woods. It was in a nice neighborhood. Uh, it was our dream house. I mean, we designed it. <clears throat> we built it. Um, we, we loved it, and uh, to sell it seemed like God was trying to rip something out of my hands. But uh, when I got back from Haiti, I remember telling my wife, we, we need to sell our house. And I didn't know what was next. And so we put our house up, on the mar- up, up for sale, and it was on the market for a few months, and, and nothing was happening. But then I just really felt this call, um, and God was telling me, you need to quit your job. And um, <clears throat> I need to make very clear at the time, Paul and I had talked a little bit, but, but I didn't have a job offer. Um, there was no approved budget for the church. Uh, there was no position description. And so I went in um, and on Monday and quit my job. And, uh, and, and then my house sold, and, uh, which was amazing because nobody had come to look at it. Um, and then right after I quit, uh, somebody came to look at it on a Friday, and they came back on a Saturday. And then the, the next Monday we had an offer, and they wanted us out in three weeks. And so it was like, okay, God, now what? Um, Okay, we've got to find a place to live, and I don't have a job, so how am I going to get a mortgage? And um, people kind of looked at me funny, but it all worked out. Uh, all things worked together for good. Uh, I sold the house. Um, I sold my car and bought a smaller car. Uh, I took a big pay cut, which is great, and came on staff at Genesis Church. And, and the transition's been good. It's really been good, but these kind of transitions are always hard. You know, people look at you funny when they find out you're quitting your job and you don't have a plan B. Uh, when you sell your dream house, people look at you funny. When, when they find out you're taking a pay cut, in fact, we had a friend, a really good friend, a believer, um, who came up to my wife and said, you need to get a job. Now, my wife works harder than just about anybody I know, certainly much harder than I do, but, but she works at home and she works with our kids. And, and she worked full-time from the time she was 14 until our older daughter was born, uh, who's now nine. So for the last nine years, she hasn't held down a job. And, and um, I'm sure she would, but, but we like her being home. But this friend um, who looked at me and, and was maybe questioning my judgment and, um, and said, you need to get a job. Yeah, people uh, look at you funny when you do those kind of things. People doubted our motives. Uh, people questioned our lifestyle, our wisdom, my intelligence anyway, uh, maybe not hers. Uh, and so when I think about the things I wish Jesus never said, this story from Mark immediately comes to mind, especially when he said, go sell everything you own, and come follow me. 
Now, this doesn't mean you should quit your job and come on staff at the church, okay? Uh, Or any other organization necessarily. And I want to make something very clear up front. I'm not telling this story because I want you to think I have it all figured out because I don't. I'm still processing what this means, what this passage means for me in my life. Uh, I haven't sold everything I own. I I still have a very nice house. Um, I have two cars, lots of clothes. Some of them are freebies. Uh, I have a dog. I haven't sold any of my kids yet. Uh, But this encounter with a rich man really did influence my decision to sell our house, to quit my job, and to come work for the church. The other thing is this. I don't expect or want you to look at me and think, oh, what a great thing Steve did. He's so awesome, because I'm not. Uh, there's not any good in me apart from Jesus. But I don't even want you to look at me and think what great faith I have because my decision has nothing to do with my great faith. It has everything to do with my faith and a great God. So in this encounter, we see a rich man approaching Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this story is captured in three of the four gospel accounts of Jesus's life. So in three of four separate accounts of Jesus's life written by four different people, three of them thought it was important enough to write this down. So in addition to Mark 10, which we just read from, it's also in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. And we piece these stories together and we find out that this man is is a rich, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. It's often called the story of the rich young ruler. And in all three of these accounts, we hear Jesus' response to the man is identical. He tells him first to obey the commandments. The man says, I've done all that since I was a boy. And then Jesus says, there's just one thing you lack. Little thing, really. Go sell everything you own and take up your cross and follow me. And in all three accounts, the man hangs his head and walks away. And in all three versions, that encounter is followed by Jesus making this observation. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus goes on, it would be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Ouch, that hurts. Now, I could spend the rest of the time that we have together talking about what that sentence means, okay? I mean, there are some theologians that say, you know, the needle's eye is, was the nickname for this gate outside the main gate in Jerusalem, and it was built just big enough for a man to walk through. So if a camel wanted to get through that gate, he would have to offload everything he was carrying and get down on his knees and crawl through the gate. Very clever, Jesus. Well played. And then some people would say that the, uh, the, the word camelos, camelos, which is a Greek word that is the rope that they used to moor a ship, so a great big diameter rope, uh, was maybe in an early translation confused for the Latin word camelos, which means camel, and that that made for a kind of a weird picture. But what Jesus was trying to say is it's like trying to get this big rope through the eye of a tiny needle. <clears throat> and then some people would just say that, you know, the camel was the largest mammal that roamed around first century Palestine, and, and the, the eye of the needle was the smallest opening that they could think of. And so Jesus used this, uh, this hyperbole to make this ridiculous comparison. But I think I understand what Jesus is trying to say here. It's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's really hard. And don't be mad at me. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And, and if you haven't had the chance to study much scripture or to read this story, I, I just invite you to pick up a Bible this week and read the whole thing in context and, and see what Jesus is trying to say to you through it. It's hard for a rich man to go to heaven. And Jesus really wants to see this young man in heaven. So he tells him to sell everything he owns, give the money to the poor and follow him. So you may be asking this already. So what does this mean for me? Does it mean I have to sell everything I own? 
Well, maybe not. But would you? Would you be willing to? One author said it this way. Jesus doesn't give a universal command in this passage, but he gives a universal test. And that test is this. What's got your heart? What's got your heart? See, the test for you might be something else entirely. It might be that you need to end that relationship that's drawing you into temptation. It may be that you need to give up the career track you're on to spend more time with your family. Maybe it's the sin pattern you're stuck in and nobody else knows about it, but it's just too comfortable and too convenient for you to get out of. Maybe for you it's sports or television or Facebook or anything else that's taking the place of God in your life. And you look at me and you go, Steve, how can Facebook take the place of God in my life? But let me ask you this. How much time a day do you spend on Facebook and how much time do you spend in your Bible? I don't know what that is. It's not taking the place of God. It can be anything that's taking the place of God in your life. But for a lot of us, it's money. It's possessions. It's things. We live in a rich country. I don't think I need to tell you that. We live in a rich country. In fact, we often, as Americans, look at the, rest of the, the way the rest of the world lives and think that it's weird that they live that way. But the truth is, on a global standard, the way that we live is weird. You know, two to three billion people in the world live on this. This is two dollars. $2 a day, 2 to 3 billion people, about half the world's population live on $2 a day or less. That's the global poverty standard, okay? So when you think 2 to $3 billion people live on this, the 300 million of us Americans that live on more than that uh, are, are downright rich by comparison. I would be willing to bet that we couldn't eat, eat, just eat on $2 a day. In fact, there's a website called $2.org, and if you look it up, $2.org has that challenge that could you eat for $2 a day for an entire week? You know, $14 for an entire week. Could you eat for $2 a day? Now, the, the poverty standard in the U.S. is $22,600 a year for a family of four. $22,600 a year is $61 a day. And so in the U.S., the poverty standard is, is 30 times the world poverty standard is $2 a day. So think about that. Our, our poor people are rich. In America, we live weird compared to the rest of the country, the rest of the world. <clears throat> you know, when when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. When was the last time you, you wondered where a meal was coming from? When was the last time that you had to pray for your daily bread? We live weird. How many of you have ever been to another country? Raise your hand if you've ever been to another country. Good, good portion of the population. One thing you might notice uh, we like to determine, as Americans, how the rest of the world should live, right? I mean, we're, you know, we're, we, we like to make that, dis- that decision, that determination. And so sometimes when you go to another country, for instance, you may notice that people smell different. Just for instance, that people smell different. We've decided in the U.S. that it's the right thing to do to wear deodorant, right? And some people don't make that decision. And when they don't, that's a bad thing, we think, in our minds, right? I mean, come on. It's a natural smell, but, but most of us have decided to wear deodorant. And the rest of you should, okay? That's the right thing to do. <laughs> but we do live differently in America than the rest of the world. I mean, think about this. Only in America do we completely pack our garages full of worthless junk and then park our $20,000 car in the driveway, right? Only in America do banks keep the doors wide open but then chain the pens to the desks. Are they really afraid that somebody's going to take the pen? Only in America do we make up games to waste our time at work, then come up with books you can buy to help you get better at those games to waste even more time at work. 
I think that title is redundant, isn't it? Farmville production? Anyway. (laughs) Only in America do we have so much stuff that sometimes it doesn't all fit in our houses, so we have to rent little spaces for our stuff to live in apart from us, right? We have self-storage has become a huge industry in America. Did you know that there are enough self-storage units in America that every man, woman, and child in the United States could stand inside one and have adequate personal space? Did you know that? Only in America do we pay $50 a month for a gym membership and then drive around for half an hour looking for a closer place to park. Or maybe you have a gym like this. We live in a rich country. By, by global standards, anyway, we are rich people. And Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to go to heaven. It's so hard. It's hard because Jesus knew that money was the most powerful force standing between us and him. That's why he talked about it more than any other thing except the kingdom of God itself. Jesus talked about money more than sin. He talked about money more than prayer. He talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. And in this particular event, since it's captured in three of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, let's think about what we can learn from it. First of all, what do we know about this rich young ruler other than the fact that he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler? I mean, clearly this in itself made him different. Uh, in, In the time that Jesus lived, much wealth would have been inherited from, from families as, as fathers passed away. So it would have been very unusual to be young and rich at the same time. There weren't a lot of Mark Zuckerbergs or Jonas Brothers walking around, not a lot of, not a lot of rich young people. So this made this man unique. To, to be a, a young ruler wouldn't have been normal either, as power tended to be uh, accumulated and earned over time. Uh, so this young man was clearly pretty special. And with his, his wealth... With his youth and with his rulerness, you might have expected him to be pretty full of himself. But, but this interaction with Jesus shows us something completely different. In fact, I think we can find three interesting character traits in this young man. And if you have your notes, if you have your program, they're in there. You can follow along. Number one is this. He was sincere about his faith. This young man was a rule follower. And if he's to be believed, he's kept the commandments since he was a boy. Now, in Jewish culture, the coming-of-age event is called a bar mitzvah, and it would happen on his 13th birthday. And so what this young man was saying was, ever since I was a boy, ever since I turned 13, uh, the bar mitzvah was when, I, when you became responsible for your actions as an adult. So ever since my bar mitzvah, I've done, I've followed the rules, I've followed the commandments, I've lived a good life, I've not sinned. He was sincere about his faith. The second thing we see is this. He was reverent toward Jesus. The scripture said he ran toward Jesus when he saw him. And that would not have been normal for a rich man to run. In in first century Palestine, if you're a rich man and and you needed somebody to run, get something, you would have sent a servant to do it. Now, I don't know what that says for me. I love to run, so I probably would have been a servant in first century Palestine. I certainly wouldn't have been a ruler. Uh, But this young man ran to Jesus. And the text says that when he got there, he fell on his knees before him. Clearly, he thought that Jesus had stature. In his mind, Jesus was someone to be admired, to be respected, and therefore to be listened to. So he he was reverent toward Jesus. The third thing is this. He was earnestly seeking the truth. This young man, say what you will about him, but he had the courage to come up to Jesus and ask, what do I need to do? 
like, I've lived a good life, but, but what else is there? Uh, he, this young man who'd had so much success was looking for significance, and he was going to Jesus to find it. How many of us actually have the courage to ask? So if we take this picture of a young man, we see that he was sincere about his faith, he was reverent toward Jesus, and he was earnestly seeking truth. In fact, if we were to transport him from the first century to 21st century America, he'd probably look like a lot of us. He would be wealthy by the world standards, successful, certainly. He'd, he'd come to church every week. He'd read his Bible and pray. He'd maybe even be in a connection group, but he would notice that something was missing from his life. This man who had had success would be desiring significance, and he would be coming to Jesus to find it. But I think the important thing about this story is not what we can learn about the rich young man or what we can learn about us. It's what we can learn about Jesus. It's really compelling. What we know about Jesus from this passage is this. Number one, we see Jesus has high standards. Jesus never called us to be a fan, but a follower. Uh, We've talked about that before. Think about it, though. There's this very strong call in the New Testament, not just to believe in Jesus, because the book of James says that even the demons believe in the one true God, but to follow him. And when you read about Jesus calling his first disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, he says, drop your nets, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then when we see him talking to Matthew, he sees Matthew at the tax collector's booth, and he says, he says, come follow me. And when some people are amazed by his teacher, he says, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And he says that anyone who doesn't take up this cross and follow me is unworthy of me. And he tells this rich young ruler, hey, you want to be perfect? Sell everything you own, then come follow me. Follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Be more like me. Become more like me. And that's hard. I got to tell you, it's really hard because no matter how much we do, we won't be like Jesus this side of heaven. I, I hope that's not a discouragement for you this morning. But everything we do, every time we make a little decision to follow him, every, every step we take in his footsteps, we become just a little more perfect, a little more like him. But it doesn't happen without our intentional decision to follow him. Now, I want to be clear that this story is not about us being able to work our way into heaven. I mean, even if this young man had sold everything he owned, he wouldn't have earned his salvation. But by doing so, he would have been giving up his autonomy and saying to God, God, you can come into my life and you can be the boss of my life. You can manage my life from now on. It's not like we can do enough stuff follow enough rules and sell enough things to earn a ticket to heaven. In fact, Jesus in this passage says, with man, this is, the disciples say, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And and Jesus himself said, um, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent me, his only son, that whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. And so this is not about earning your salvation. This is about answering the call of the Son of God and making the intentional decision to be more like him. Pastor and author John Ortberg says it this way. He says, you don't drift into full devotion to God. It takes a conscious effort. It takes blood, sweat, and tears, a total devotion, and a decision that says Jesus is most important. So too, Jesus has high standards. Then he holds us to them too.
third thing we learn about Jesus is this, or the, sorry, the second thing we learn about Jesus is this, that he rewards us for a decision to follow him. Look at what happens after this story, after the young man walks away in Mark. Uh, we skip down to verse 28. Then Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So what's the reward for following Jesus? Significance for one, the chance to do something important, the chance to do something exciting. I got to tell you, I love my job now. I can't imagine anything else I'd rather be doing for any amount of money with any other group of people. Now, I, I worked at a great place with a lot of responsibility for a lot of years with a whole slew of awesome people. But I've never felt the significance that I feel just in this three weeks at Genesis Church. I've never, I, I was able to make a huge difference in the corporate world. At least I felt like I was. And I was able to make a lot of money, but I've never felt the significance I felt here. And Jesus says, anyone who's giving something up in his name will be paid back a hundred times what he or she sacrificed. And, and sometimes that comes in the form of money, but not usually. Sometimes it's glory or fame, but not often. But how about joy? How about freedom? Jesus said, He came to bind up the brokenhearted and set the captives free. He said that he came so that we might have abundant life. Not abundant stuff, but abundant life. But the rewards are so great, and they're not at all measurable sometimes. And so we're not always willing to make the sacrifice. I love how the great author and theologian C.S. Lewis says it this way in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, when I was a kid, I loved these. You know what this is? Anybody? It's a book, yeah. It's a book, right. Uh, This is a choose-your-own-adventure book. Have you ever seen these? Anybody ever read choose-your-own-adventure books? And I love these because, um, because you get to decide how the story goes, right? And so you, you, the way this works is you start at the beginning, if you haven't read these, uh, if you were deprived as a child, uh, you read these, and, and you get to a decision point. And at some point, you reach a decision. So if you ask Graham about Sam Carter, turn to page 30. If you go find Roderick Carter, turn to page 54. And so you get to decide how the story goes. And, and when I was a kid, I was a daredevil, a bit of a daredevil. Okay, I like to pretend I was a daredevil. And so... Choose your own adventure books were a safe place for me to experiment with being a daredevil. And so I would often take the most dangerous course of action I could imagine. And, and I often died, actually, when reading these books, which is bad. But it's better than dying in real life, I think. So it's better than, you know, going off a cliff in a mountain bike or whatever. Um, but you always wanted to choose the course of action that gave you the best story, Right. You want the best story, and so you would think about what course of action gives you the best story. And so in our lives, we have the same decision to make that this rich young ruler made. We, we have a choice to look God in the face, and when he tells us something, we can hang our head and walk away, or we can choose to follow him. And, and which one do you think would make the better story?
Now, I, I don't know what that means for you this morning. It may mean you need to sell some things and simplify your life. Maybe you need to give more, be more generous. Maybe you need to quit your job and stay home with the kids or, or get your kids out of a sport so that they're home more. Maybe you're just about to make a purchase or ink the deal or, or enter a partnership and you need to rethink how that whole thing is going to work. Maybe it's the extracurricular groups you're involved with at school or the sports team or whatever it is. You know what it is that Jesus is calling you to do next. You hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in your head telling you what to do. And you feel it in your bones. The question is, are you willing to make that decision this morning? You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus made this comparison. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The treasure, Jesus said, is so valuable, we should be willing to trade everything for it. Our jobs, our homes, our cars, electronics, everything. Now, notice the man doesn't, doesn't try to negotiate with the owner of the field and see how little he can get by with. He doesn't sell half of what he owns and then takes it and says, is this enough? Is this enough? He sells everything. He gets rid of everything to trade it for this treasure. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He goes all in. He sells it all because the rewards are worth it. They're so worth it. The third thing we learn about Jesus comes from Mark 10, uh, verse 20 and 21. Teacher, the young man declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and, what's that word? Jesus looked at him and loved him. And our, our takeaway is this, no matter what decision you make, Jesus loves you. See, Jesus, who was there at the beginning, the Bible tells us at the very beginning that Jesus was there, and he is there through all of eternity, and he will be there at the end. The Bible says that Jesus will sit on his throne at the end, and Jesus has been there from the beginning to the end, and he knows all, and he sees all. And so he sees that this young man, he already knows when, when he poses the challenge, this young man is going to hang his head and walk away. And Jesus looks at him and loves him anyway. So no matter what decision you make, Jesus loves you. See, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. His love is infinite. It's perfect. It's eternal. And no amount of works or obedience or sacrifice can make him love you more. And some people may hear that and think, that means I don't have to follow him. And that's true. You don't have to if you don't want to. But isn't that kind of love the best reason to follow him? He loves you so much. He loves you when you're good and he loves you when you screw up. And I got to tell you, I screw up a lot, and so I need that kind of love. He loves you so much, in fact, that he refuses to let you stay the way you are. I was driving to work a couple weeks ago, and um, I had one of those driveway moments when you, you ever do that. You're listening to a story on the radio, and you stop your car, and you don't want to get out yet because you're listening to the story. And um, this was a story of the um, capture and, and killing of Osama bin Laden in, in um, it was so interesting and so compelling to me because uh, they haven't released the names of the Navy SEALs that were involved in this, in this uh, mission, but there was a, a journalist that got the chance to interview them and hear how this whole thing went. And um, this, this journalist talks about how there were two helicopters, two Blackhawks involved in this, and I don't, I don't know if you've heard this, but one of the helicopters actually crashed uh, when they were going in, and so 
I would think, you know, I'm not a Navy SEAL, clearly, but I would think that if my helicopter crashed, I've probably got a pretty good excuse not to go in. You know, it's like, uh, uh, what's your excuse? Why weren't you there when my chopper crashed? You know, so I think that would be a good excuse. But, but these guys, they, this is the kind of guys Navy SEALs are. They're, they're, they're brave and they're talented and they're skilled, and, and a, a helicopter crash is just a, an inconvenience. And so uh, there are 12 in one chopper, and they get out, and the 11 that crashed, they get out and they meet in the bottom of this compound and they, they have to blast through the, these gates and security. And um, what they find out that when they get in the building is that the, the higher up they go in the building, the more resistance they encounter and the more uh, the, the tougher the gates and the, the security measures are. And so they know that there's a high value target in the building. And so they blast their way through the security gates to get in. They blast their way through the gates to get up the stairs to the second floor. And they blast their way through that gate and they get up to the third floor the top floor, and they know that there's a high-value target here somewhere. And um, the, it's all it's pitch black. It's the middle of the night, and uh, these guys are wearing the night vision goggles, and so everything they see is in these green pixelated images, and they see this lanky, bearded man peering around the corner and then run into a room. And so the SEALs chase after him, and they go into this bedroom, and, and there is Osama bin Laden, and he's got two women in the room with him, two of his wives, his, his youngest wife, uh, is is yelling at these seals and in Arabic, and so they they don't know what she's saying. But one of the seals, very calmly, collectively, goes and grabs both women, one in each arm, gives them a big bear hug, and takes them to the corner of the room and tackles them. And at that point, the reporter stops and says, "Now wait a minute. Why did why did he tackle the women?" And I'll never forget this. He, the 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 reporter that interviewed the seal said, "Well, the assumption was that they would be wearing suicide vests." And this seal knew, this man knew, that even if he had to die, that the mission would still be accomplished. Wow, what a great picture of bravery and, and something that, that I don't know that I'd be willing to do in that situation. But what an awesome picture of bravery and, and sacrifice. And, and what a great visual picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. I, I mean, Jesus came down here and he knew that even if he had to die, God's mission could still be accomplished as long as he, as long as he went for us. Romans 5 says it this way. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the Jesus I want to follow. That's the Jesus I'd sell everything to follow. The Jesus that loves us unconditionally. The Jesus who's willing to die on the cross for us to make sure God's mission was accomplished. The the Jesus that refuses to leave us the way we are. The Jesus that says hard things. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, I'm so thankful for your word. And as I continue to process what that means for me, I just pray that you would be with me, be with us. I pray that you would uh, make your wisdom known to the people in this room. And Father, I just sense that there are people this morning that are struggle with this message and that, that struggle with this passage and, and don't know what that means for their life. Would you give them great clarity, great wisdom, great discernment to know what their next step is? And Father, I pray too for the people in this room that uh, aren't even in a relationship with you right now, that that don't know, don't really understand that, that you sent your son to die for them. I just pray uh, 
if there's somebody in this room that just, just needs that assurance this morning that this would be their morning, that uh, they would find someone to talk to, to pray with, to, to process through uh, what this means for their life. I'm so thankful for your word that you've given us through the Bible. I'm thankful for your son, Jesus, who you sent for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.